even though all of us have cancer cells in our bodies, only one in three of us in the U.S. will develop cancer and die from it. That means that everyone also has natural defenses that can help slow down the disease and, for most of us, contain it altogether. Coming up, learn how to fight cancer naturally with Dr. David Servan Schreiber. Next on Change Nation from First30Days.com. Cancer. It's one of the most feared health diagnoses out there. Part of that fear comes from the prevailing wisdom that there's just no way to stop it. Cancer can strike at any time. Not so, says Dr. David Servan Schreber, a founding member of Doctors Without Borders and a professor of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh. After battling his own bout with brain cancer, he made it his mission to find out how he could prevent his cancer from coming back. He's compiled all of this research into a new book called Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life. Today on Change Nation, David is here to talk to us about this new book, this research, and explain how you can live an anti-cancer lifestyle. David, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the show. Hi, I'm delighted to be here. So David, uh, this book is fascinating. I, I was very struck by the research and just the, the depth of what's there, but also how simple some of the solutions are that you offer. So let's, let's just start with describing what is an anti-cancer lifestyle? Well, I think it starts with the realization that even though all of us have cancer cells in our bodies, only one in three of us in the U.S. will develop cancer and die from it. That means that everyone also has natural defenses that can help slow down the disease and, so, and for most of us contain it altogether. So we need to be aware of these defenses and, and nourish them. Uh, now, the anti-cancer lifestyle has uh, several components. Uh, you know, we can go to each one of them if you want. Sure, let's jump right in. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, one of them is to stop putting in your body uh, things that promote cancer growth uh, within the, the, your biology. So that, of course, includes cigarette smoke, uh, but uh, a large number of, of chemicals that, are, that have become pervasive in our home environment, uh, including uh, the, you know, the, the heated plastics of cups, water bottles uh, that are made out of plastic for children that are known to act as estrogen hormones uh, when they leak out of the plastic with heated um, liquids. So that's one example. Then there's uh, the parabenes and, and phthalates that are in uh, shampoos and in perfumes and uh, cosmetic creams uh, should also be avoided. The aluminum in uh, anti-transparent, anti-perspirant. Uh, some of the cleaning products that contain alkyl phenols that uh, are known uh, carcinogens. So there's a number of these things that are part of our environment that we need to learn to avoid. But more importantly, we need to start including in our days and in our life things that make our biology stronger in resisting cancer. And that, of course, includes uh, changes in our diet. We know that diet is very strongly related to uh, how, whether people develop cancer or whether they resist cancer. So, David, what, what are the best foods to both fight cancer and then the foods really to, to help prevent it even from ever showing up? Mm -hmm. Well, the best foods in general are in the family of vegetables and, and some of the fruits, mostly vegetables. So the number one thing that 
populations uh, on the planet that, that have low cancer rates, the number one thing that we find in epidemiological studies is that they, instead of making meat and animal products the center of their uh, plate twice a day, uh, they make that vegetables, and they, they sometimes have meat, uh, but meat is uh, is an accompaniment. It's something on top of the vegetables to add taste to the dish. It's not the center of the dish. So vegetables contain a wide number of phytochemicals that they develop to uh, resist aggressions in, in the wild where they grow, uh, and these phytochemicals uh, that are part of the vegetables uh, have profound effects on our physiology, and they directly counteract uh, uh, cancer cells or prevent them from developing the blood vessels they need to grow into large tumors. Have you found certain vegetables are better than others? If people should add three vegetables to really start living this anti-cancer lifestyle, what would they be? The top uh, vegetables that uh, have anti-cancer properties are uh, garlic, uh, leeks, and onions. So they're also the cheapest, and they're, they're the ones that you can add to almost anything, probably not to desserts, but you know, <laughs> practically everything else. You can put them in soups, you can uh, add them to fish, to meat, to any vegetable dish, to salads, uh, to almost anything. And they, uh, garlic, for example, has been known for a long time to have strong uh, uh, anti-cancer properties. Then um, there's the whole family of cabbage. Uh, broccoli, cauliflower, uh, Brussels sprouts, uh, Chinese cabbage. All of these uh, cabbages have uh, indole-3-carbinols and sulforaphanes uh, uh, as part of their uh, leaves that uh, have strong anti-cancer properties as well. So this would be the, the leading families, but you'll find uh, anti-cancer agents in um, in soy, in tofu, in, um, in tempeh, in uh, in miso, uh, and it's been well documented that uh, the Japanese who uh, eat uh, tofu products before puberty have dramatically lower rates of breast cancer when they grow up, and there's still some degree of protection for someone who's already grown up. What about foods that actually stimulate cancer formation? What are, what are the absolute top ones on that list? Uh, you know, the, the most striking one is sugar. Uh, it's uh, obvious to anyone who ever studied cancer cells that they have an abnormal metabolism which makes them entirely dependent on the availability of sugar for growth. They can't do with anything else. In fact, that's the property we use to detect cancer in the body. When people uh, uh, go through a PET scan to see if they have tumors in their body, well, the PET scan measures where does radioactive sugar accumulate in the body. That's all it does. That's because cancer feeds on sugar. And we've, we've, been, uh, we've gone from a consumption of 12 pounds of refined sugar per person and per year in the 1800s to, to uh, 150 pounds per person per year in the year 2000. So we've completely flooded our biology with sugar, and no surprise, uh, cancer rates have also shot up in the, over the same period of time. So for someone who has been diagnosed recently, what would you say are the most important things to both do and not do now in the first 30 days of that diagnosis? Well, the most important thing is, is to realize that whatever the statistics you're confronted with, uh, some people are going to do way better than the median uh, that is given to you. Now, these people are those who've done something to strengthen their biology. 
uh, so the first thing that I would say to anyone, and I do say to uh, patients who have cancer, is to not feel hopeless. In fact, find hope in the fact that you can help yourself. And it's not just the treatments. The treatments are, are of course, essential. You can't do without them. Uh, but you can greatly enhance the chances of helping you by adding uh, a variety of things to your lifestyle that will strengthen your body. And, and so in terms of food, I, I start by telling them to add some foods that are very beneficial. For example, green tea. It's a very simple thing to add to your daily routine. And green tea has uh, powerful anti-cancer properties uh, like many foods. Um, aromatic herbs like uh, rosemary, like thyme, like mint, basil. These are very easy things to start to add to your, uh, to your meals every day. And they also have strong anti-cancer properties. Uh, so start by adding things. And then progressively you, you start to decrease the foods that come and feed cancer. Um, but that's hard. It's a harder thing to do because we're sort of addicted. We're addicted to sugar. We're addicted to red meat. Um, even though you know red meat has been well documented to be associated with higher cancer rates. So, the connection between sugar and cancer. Is it fair to say that people who have a lot less sugar in their diet are less likely to develop cancer? Well, what we do know is the other way around. We know that people who have higher uh, sugar in their diet are more likely to develop cancer. So I, I guess you can infer that people who have less are less likely. They're certainly less likely than those who have a lot more sugar in their diet. There was a, a Harvard study that looked at uh, one of the hormones that the body secretes when you regularly eat a lot of sugar. Then you can measure that hormone in, in, in the blood of people. Those who had the higher levels of that hormone uh, had up to four, uh, four times uh, greater risks of uh, Cancer. And same research for artificial sugars. It's trickier, you know. There's no uh, good. Uh, there's no studies in humans that I know of showing an increased risk of cancer for people who consume aspartame, for example, on a regular basis. Uh, but there are intriguing studies in animals showing that uh, it's possible that aspartame may be linked to a, a higher cancer risk. What I tell people about this is that if you don't have cancer, I wouldn't worry about it. But if you have cancer, I probably would avoid uh, sugar substitutes like aspartame. Now, David, you yourself, as a doctor, had a brain tumor um, a few years ago and set out on this mission to understand both how to prevent a relapse but also be able to share all of this with, with people. What was it like for you as a doctor to, to develop this? Well, it was quite a surprise and quite a chance of uh, of life. Uh, you know, I discovered my brain tumor in my own brain scanning experiment as I was doing research at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and uh, then all of a sudden, I, I found myself uh, no longer being this uh, sprightly doctor running through the corridors of the hospital, but being a patient in the same hospital. And, in fact, I used to go with my white coat so as to not lose my status completely. You know, I'd go see my oncologist in, in my white coat, uh, but I, I noticed quickly that it didn't quite protect me from the reality of, of my disease. Uh, what being a doctor allowed me to do, though, is, is to dig very deeply for all the things I could find to help me along 
uh, get the most out of my treatments, which really mostly physicians don't tell you about because they don't see it as their concern. You know, they don't see it as their job to talk to you about what you should eat or not eat and what physical exercise you should have in your life, uh, how to manage your emotions differently so uh, as to strengthen your immune system. It's just not part of uh, what conventional medicine uh, teaches patients, even though it's all over the scientific literature. This is Change Nation from the first30days.com. We'll be right back. David, I wanted to talk to you about exercise, emotions, and other things that make up this anti-cancer lifestyle. I'm Ariane. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Ariane. David, just before the break, you mentioned both exercise and emotions as also something that comprise this anti-cancer lifestyle. What level of exercise do we really need to be doing to help our bodies and our, our blood cope with um, all the attacks that are made on our body? Well, you know, exercise is, is good uh, all around in terms of um, in- improving your potential for health. Uh, what is newer and that few people know is that uh, a little more physical activity goes a long way in reducing your risk of developing cancer. Uh, We know, for example, that uh, women who walk 30 minutes six times a week, which is not much, but it could could be walking to work and back from work every day, 30 minutes six times a week. Well, those women have half the risk of breast cancer than those who don't uh, walk that much. Uh, we see that even when they already had breast cancer. We look at relapse rates. Well, those who walk 30 minutes six times a week have half the risk of a relapse than those who don't walk. This is about as good as the benefits you get from the best drug we have to prevent relapse of breast cancer, which is Herceptin for women who, who are positive for the HER receptor. Uh, and nothing prevents you from taking Herceptin and walking 30 minutes six times a week. So the benefits are enormous. We see them in the colon cancer as well, and we see them in prostate cancer, uh, so it makes a big difference. It, uh, exercise strengthens your biology, strengthens your immune system, reduces the body's capacity for inflammation, which cancer needs to develop and spread. So exercise is an all-around uh, anti-cancer booster. Is it about getting more oxygen into the blood? Is it about just breathing? Is it about sweating? Uh, it's about a large number of things. See, the, the, the fat tissue that we all have, for example, and, and most of us in America have too much of, the, the fat tissue constantly leaks the toxins that were accumulated uh, from our childhood and, and through the foods that we eat with the pesticides and the fertilizers and the chemicals in our environment. They're all stored in our fat tissue that leaks in permanently into our body and may stimulate cancer growth. As we exercise and lose some of that fat tissue, uh, we uh, stop feeding the cancer growth. We also stimulate our immune system. Uh, immune, the immune system loves exercise, and therefore you know, it goes more aggressively after the cancer cells that, uh, that often it knows how to detect, uh, but may have become a little uh, slumber uh, about uh, chasing down. Um, and uh, exercise also regulates uh, some of the key hormones in the body that uh, can reduce inflammation. Uh, people who exercise regularly have lower levels of, of inflammation. And when you have low inflammation, 
then cancer doesn't have the, 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 what it needs to grow and spread. Let's talk about um, emotions and general stress management. I've, I've personally in my own life had seen friends get cancer who, who eat beautifully and exercise very regularly, mm -hmm. and they, they are the last person I think would be diagnosed, and yet they have been. What, what is the real effect of that level of stress on our lives and on our bodies? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a actually a complicated question because we know that stress in and of itself cannot cause cancer. There's no mechanism that we know of, at least today, through which uh, the stress, high stress level could uh, break DNA bonds, for example. It cannot cause cancer. But what we do know is that uh, some reactions to stress, particularly helplessness, powerlessness, uh, feelings of abandonment, uh, of lack of control, of, uh, of losing hope that anything could be done, those feelings of helplessness can contribute to the growth of an existing tumor under some circumstances. Uh, interestingly, what we see in rats is that if you graft them with an aggressive um, uh, cancer tumor and you give them some stress that they can control at least in part, uh, by pressing your lever, for example, to avoid electric shocks once in a while. Well, those rats don't become helpless because they have some degree of control over their environment. And these rats reject the tumors better than rats grafted with the same cancer who have no stress at all in their environment. So it's as if there were a good stress and a bad stress. You know, the stress that creates helplessness can contribute to cancer growth. Uh, stress that uh, keeps you on your toes and keeps you engaged in life gives you a sense that uh, some of the times you can do well and you're in control. Well, that type of stress actually may be protecting us from developing cancer. So you see how difficult it is to do these studies because you can't just measure stress. You have to measure what is the, each person's response to stress. One of the things that fascinates me is that we, we all have a lot of this information, and yet there's a part of us that sabotages our health nearly every day. Why do we do that? Well, I think we're all extremely ill-equipped when it comes to uh, learning to manage stress and conflict and tensions in our lives. And there's a lot of pressure for us to manage uh, the difficult emotional aspect of our life with things that uh, other people can make money on. For example, we're, you know, we're pushed to manage stress by drinking whiskey, for example. Every time you drink whiskey, someone makes money who's selling you the whiskey. Or we're pushed to manage stress, we used to be, you know, by smoking cigarettes or by watching television or by uh, you know, buying um, uh, movie tickets or uh, do something that will, uh, that will uh, feed the economy. Uh, instead of managing stress with what is actually most essential to feeding life within us, which is often spending time alone by ourselves, learning how to meditate, learning how to feel what life flow is like within our bodies, learning how to be with other people, uh, learning how to play cards with friends and laugh, you know, learning how to uh, be joyful and, and uh, playful uh, with our children. Uh, these are things that, you know, if we, when we do that, nobody makes any money. And uh, therefore, we're, we're not educated into how to do that. It's not part of our upbringing. It's not what we learn to do in schools. Um, yet, it is what we know from the standpoint of psychiatry and psychology, what is most essential uh, to people's balance. 
And in some ways, you know, it's, it's trans. We see that people who do volunteer work are, in every study that has ever looked at that, people who do volunteer work have, are in better physical health uh, than those who don't. And it's not because those who don't can't volunteer. We can control for that. It's just the fact of being engaged in community, of giving of yourself, of feeling useful, of helping other people grow or be joyful around you. Uh, that actually nourishes life inside of you and helps resist disease. If someone has a pretty toxic lifestyle and they're listening to you right now, how quickly do you think it's possible to turn that around? Well, it, you know, it's hard to say because it depends on each person. And I've done it with many people, uh, and I've seen people who ch- turned around their lifestyle in two weeks and others for whom it took two years. Uh, I don't think it's ever hopeless. Uh, it's actually it's a self-feeding process. As you begin to do it, from whichever angle you start, whether it's exercise or nutrition or, or meditation or other forms of stress management, whatever um, strand you pick to start, uh, it will take you to the others. As you become more aware, conscious of your body, of the life inside of you, uh, you become more and more conscious of the damage that you may be doing with some of your um, destructive patterns, and they become less and less appealing. So, you know, you can start by meditating. You can start by paying attention to what you put and feed into your body. Um, and whichever one you pick, I think it will lead you to the others because you'll just become more aware of the whole process of feeding life. David, one of the most fascinating chapters in your book is about cell phone usage. And you say a fascinating statement, which is that cell phones will be the new cigarette in 20 years. Why is it that cell phones are so dangerous? Well, we don't have the final proof that they are. What I'm saying is that <clears throat> there are many warning signs that make me quite concerned and which made me want to uh, lay out for people what are the precautions that we all ought to be using uh, as we use our phones. You know, I have a brain tumor. I've had it for 16 years. Uh, I'm very careful about cell phones, but I have one. Uh, we, at this stage, I think we, nobody can do without one if you want to be, you know, active in life and, uh, and be a contributing member of society and, and contribute to your family's health and well-being. I think we, we, it's hard to do without one. But we can learn how to control them and use them in a way that minimizes health risks. So... Uh, the question is, why are they uh, potentially dangerous? Well, this is it. We know very well uh, that cell phone radiation are microwave radiation and that they penetrate the brain. I mean, nobody has any, uh, there's no controversy about this issue whatsoever. We know they penetrate the brain of children more deeply than the brain of adults. So this is even of greater concern for children. We know that those microwave radiations affect biological tissue and that biological tissue, uh, brain cells, for example, respond to these microwave radiations as if they were being attacked. Uh, They respond in the same way uh, by generating stress proteins uh, than they respond when they're exposed to excessive heat or to chemical aggression. We also know that uh, those same radiations change the uh, relationship between blood vessels in the brain and, and brain cells in such a way that the brain cells are now exposed to uh, chemicals uh, traveling in the blood that they normally never see, but because of the microwave radiation, the, bl- the blood vessels let those chemicals 
sip through the walls and get into the um, uh, brain cells. So we know they affect biological tissue. Now, the question, the big question, you know, the uh, $1 million question is, uh, are there studies showing higher rates of cancer in people who use their cell phones? And a number of studies have been done over the last 15 years, say, uh, looking at this issue. But think about it. Cell phones started uh, their widespread existence 15 years ago. So most of these studies have looked at people who've used their phones for less than 10 years. And that is a huge problem because and, you know, most of these find no effect, right? No relationship between cell phone use and cancer. But if you had people smoke a pack of cigarettes a day for 10 years, you would see absolutely no effect on lung cancer. It takes 15 to 30 years before there's an effect of smoking on lung cancer. So, David, so, for, the, for us that we all have cell phones, what are ways to minimize the effect and impact of what it does create on our bodies? Well, you know, the number one way is to uh, use it as, as, uh, as minimally as possible. You know, use it for brief conversation, use it, to est- use it to establish contact, and then call back from a landline. Uh, I would say that's, uh, that's the primary thing you need to do. Don't use your cell phone as a replacement for your landline, which is what many people are now starting to do because they're so convenient and you always have it with you. Why do you also need a landline? You know, I, I, more and more of my friends are now <coughs> doing without their landline. And uh, that is not wise. You need your cell phone. Think of it as a talkie-walkie of sorts, you know, something you have so that you can be reached when, when needed. But don't use it to, uh, for long conversations. That's the first thing. Uh, when you use your phone, as much as possible, use a hands-free device to uh, make, create more distance between the phone and, and your brain or, in fact, the rest of your body because it also radiates to other parts of your body. So you, you can use a headset, uh, you can use um, a Bluetooth headset or, or a wired headset, but use a headset uh, or use the speakerphone ability of, of your cell phone so as to not stick it right next to your brain. Uh, that would be another <clears throat> very big uh, measure you, that you can use. David, I want to really um, acknowledge you for being so bold and really speaking up. Um, whereas I find, especially in this country, very few doctors are recommending this kind of anti-cancer lifestyle and are focused on nutrition. And why, why do you feel that is? Why is it that so many of us are just going into a lot more traditional ways of healing? Well, again, you know, I went through surgery twice. I did 13 months of chemotherapy in total. Uh, I didn't try to go around conventional treatment. It's necessary. You cannot do without it. It saved my life. Uh, so this is not a question of, you know, deciding between chemotherapy and drinking green tea. Uh, it's about doing chemotherapy and drinking green tea. What concerns me is that nobody tells us uh, as people who want to avoid cancer or as people who already have cancer, nobody tells us about the green tea. And that's not normal because it's all over the scientific literature. But as you can expect, there haven't been double-blind controlled trials of green tea uh, versus other forms of tea uh, in 10,000 people replicated three times and published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And there will never be because you cannot patent green tea. There's no money to make on green tea, just like there's no money to make on exercise, no money to make on meditation, uh, nobody to, no money to make on, on better uh, relationship management. Uh, so these things will never be 
the focus of large controlled randomized trials. Because of that, uh, it's as if the uh, you know modern medicine considered them to be some form of witchcraft because they have not been submitted to the same kind of uh, evidence-based trials that you can do for chemotherapy or radiotherapy. Uh, but they will never be. So we have to do with the evidence that we have, which is how well they work in, in uh, labs, on cells, how well they work in animals, and the evidence we have from epidemiological studies showing us that you know, the people who do drink green tea have fewer cancers. Uh, the people who have cancer and drink green tea have less severe cancers that don't spread as much. We have those kinds of studies, but they don't have, they're not the same scientific quality that you can get with uh, controlled trials of chemotherapy. David, the way we end off all of our interviews here on the show is to ask all our experts and guests the exact same three questions, and they're questions really about change and transition in general. So here's the first question. What is the belief that you personally go to during times of change and transition in your own life? Uh, that I will find uh, um, meaning in whatever happens and that the purpose of life is to grow uh, meaning so that in a sense I, I can't fail, you know, whatever happens. Um, it may be hard, uh, but it, it will be some form of crucible and uh, you know, when I come out on the other end, I will have learned something important and meaningful. Here's the second one. Fill in the sentence, the best thing about change is? <laughs> uh, discovery. Beautiful. Here's the last one. What is the best change that you have ever made? Uh, in my mind, there's no question that it was to... Uh, uh, abandoned my uh, high-powered uh, career as a research professor uh, to dedicate myself to treating people and, and teaching young physicians about how to better treat people. And I'm, you know, I'm still living in that energy today of trying to teach people how to help themselves um, rather than focusing on uh, bettering my career as an academic. Beautiful. Well, we are... Very grateful that you made that change, and I know I speak on behalf of thousands and thousands who have both read your book and had the pleasure to be met by you, healed by you, and treated by you. Thank you very much. Thank you. For more information on Dr. David Servon Schreiber, please visit his website at anticancerbook.com and be sure to pick up a copy. The book is called Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life. You've been listening to an interview with David Servon Schreiber on Change Nation. And for more fascinating interviews, please be sure to check us out online at first30days.com. I'm Ariane. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Change Nation from first30days.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes in the Society and Culture section under Philosophy. Remember to take time to leave us feedback about the show. We'd love to know what you think. Change Nation is a production of the first 30 days incorporated. Copyright 2008. All rights reserved.